When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Eighteen sixty-nine being the date and the year, those Waterloo sportsmen and more did appear. For to gain the great prizes and the bear the mama, they were counting on Ireland and Master McGrath. By modern standards, of greyhounds, of course, he'd be considered a very small dog. Fifty-seven, fifty-eight pounds when you have him now, seventy-five, seventy-six, and eighty pounds running. But. Uh, He wasn't exactly a beauty, but still, there was something about him, particularly his body formation, that impressed the greyhound men very much. Mm-hmm. He had a wonderful eye, fiery eyes. His colour, of course, was rather rare too, that he was a black with a little white in the front of the breast and a kind of a black a whitish patch on the back of his neck. Mm -hmm. And he had the appearance as if a very light fall of snow had fallen on him. He was just very faintly flicked, as we call it, with white. Pax Whelan, reminiscing some years ago about possibly the greatest greyhound that ever lived, Master McGrath. He went to uh, the Visitors' Cup in Lorgan, this took place every year early in the season, in the coursing season, and uh, all the friends of the Lorgans, the Brown Rose, all over Ireland, all the coursing men went up there and took up one or two dogs to compete in what was known as the Visitors' Cup. Galway had gone up with some dogs, but on arrival there they found that they wouldn't have enough, so word was sent back to Colligan to send up two more dogs. And of the two sent up, one was Master McGrath. He competed in the Visitors' Cup and and won it and put up such a great performance that they decided to run him in the Waterloo Cup of that year, which was 1868. Well, everybody knows now how how well he ran in the Waterloo in 1868, and he won it. After winning it, he came back to Ireland and came back to Nungarn. And I have spoken to people, I know people, who saw him on the square of Dungarn, surrounded by an admiring crowd. He uh, competed, as you know, the following year again, 1869, and put up more remarkable performances and won out. The following year, he had uh, his first defeat when he fell into a drain and was rescued by the slipper. There was the drain was frozen over and he fell through the ice and was rescued with some difficulty. 
There has been some talk, and it has been, I have seen statements made by various people to the effect that he was doped by uh, some bookmaker's tout on account of the large amount of money he was carrying. He was a strong favourite again to win it out, and that that was the cause of it, the, that he being doped. Mm-hmm. He didn't know what he was doing, he tumbled into it. Coursing dogs were always popular in Ireland, and Master McGrath is vividly remembered over 100 years on. But there was no greyhound racing as we know it until 1927. Jimmy Drum remembers how it started. The first I heard of, 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 of uh, the opening of dogs in, in, in Dublin, in, uh, or in the Republic, it wasn't the Republic then, it was a free state, was uh, when Bulmer Hobson's brother, who was a wealthy man, and uh, the man with the money, there were two, and he was a quantity surveyor in uh, Manchester. My man is John Bulmer Hobson, but nobody ever knows that. It's just Bulmer Hobson down here. And Harold came over, and uh, with a little bit of excitement, uh, he said to Bulmer, I refer to him because I know him as Bulmer so well, he said to him, uh, you know, I, I, there's a thing in Bellevue, in Manchester, uh, attracting crowds, very big crowds, people in thousands. And he said to Bulmer, he said, dog racing. Bulmer looked at him and said, dog racing? Yes, he said, dog racing. Greyhounds, racing, chasing hares. Well, he said, they, they wouldn't do that on a closed circuit, will they? Yes, as said Harold. You'd be amazed what what's, uh, what to do, and 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 that the stupidity, but um, what uh, that's that's uh, my my visit here is is to tell you to get into it quick, <laughs> quickly. You go up to Belfast, he said, and uh, they they came from Belfast. Go up to Belfast and see McAlinden and Jim Rice and Shaw and the, those names of her, and. Uh, he said that they'd put the money up. So that's exactly what he did, and he became a director. Shelburne Park got started, and among the men who controlled its destinies then and for 40-odd years afterwards were Jerry Collins and Paddy O'Donoghue. George Deegan has been groundsman there since the start of racing in 1927. Conditions then were not like the present day. Sure, it was only like an ash pit at that time. And... Um... They took away all the banks and built walls and put back the track. The track was changed twice. The names of the heroes of the early years, both canine and human, are still fresh in George's mind. Mention of the great Tanist started a litany of names. Oh, bit a pity. Crudeline Boy. Moselle. Spanish battleship. Cormorant, resplendent. Other gone last, she was a great hurdler. But you nearly all the people that trained them there were all dead and gone. Oh, there was great trainers. Michael Horden, Paddy Quigley, William Donahue, Bill McCollum, Ben Skelly, Jack Duffy. No, they're all dead. And there was another great man here too, John Creed was his name. I think he's alive yet, though. And of course, Tom Hart is alive. 
and he was here the first night. If horse racing was traditionally the sport of kings, greyhound racing catered for the man on the street. Anyone could keep a dog or two and dream of having a derby winner. The expenses of keeping a racing dog weren't high, but the price you got on the sale ring and the prizes you won weren't great either. Jim Sherry, the trainer, remembers. You bought a, a jolly good greyhound that time for a hundred quid, <laughs> and you ran for a tenner. <laughs> and if you went to a, when in a little track like Navin now, when it opened first, the the top prize there was about five quid. Jack Nallan, who was subsequently very successful with his greyhounds, also remembers. Well, I remember when they were exporting greyhounds from this country, not registered to England, for £2 and £5 each. There were buyers buying them for £2 and unregistered dogs and sending them to England for tracking in England. Greyhound racing at that time was governed by the Irish Coursing Club. Arthur Morris traces the history. Well, I think... Um, to begin with, one must distinguish between greyhound racing, coursing, and the greyhound scene generally, uh, because the Irish Coursing Club um, became autonomous back in 1916, and between then and 1927 and later, became involved in greyhound racing. Um, from almost the commencement of greyhound racing in Ireland, the Irish Coursing Club attempted to have totalisator betting legalised. Um, there were various conferences at club and government level with a view to achieving this objective. Uh, unfortunately, there were many breakdowns, if you could call them such, before finally the first uh, national government, being the then Comna Nail Party, uh, agreed to legalise totalisator betting and a scheme was formalised. On the strength of that, Shelburne Park uh, set up the tote building and were ready to go into operation immediately after the minister signed the final document. What year would that be that, about? That would have been 1932. Uh, unfortunately, before this licence or document was signed, there was a change of government. And as a result of the cha change of government, the um, arrangement was scrapped and the Irish Coursing Club was informed that the proposals of the common and ale government were unacceptable to them and that there would have to be a new deal. The Irish Coursing Club, with no tote facility to provide revenue, struggled on at the task of controlling greyhound racing. Negotiations and talks progressed slowly. Seamus Flanagan, the present chief officer of Bordnagan, recalled some of the problems. This was the immediate sort of post-war boom when there was a lot of... Um uh, money floating around in search of uh, too few goods and uh, parts of the um, spin-off uh, came uh, fortunately indeed into greyhound racing but as a result of that uh, tremendous boom uh, the, a lot of control problems developed and uh, the minister decided well we 
uh, the right thing to do is to set up a committee. Do you mean there was a lot of roguery afoot? Uh, yes, there, there, there were allegations of uh, wrong dogs being run and uh, substitution of dogs, that sort of thing. Some doubts were being created in the public mind at that time about the integrity of some racing. And uh, the minister decided to set up a committee and uh, I was secretary of that committee. The advisory board that was set up in the opinion of myself and many of those who were associated with the Irish Coursing Club as we know it was designed not for the purpose of uh, legalising totalisator betting but for the purpose of reorganising the whole structure of greyhound racing and taking a large measure of control away from the Irish Coursing Club uh, in the result, um, the Irish Coursing Club was not um, greatly concerned that there should be a division of control between the club and the board, um, but they did feel that there were political motives involved which were not altogether palatable and that the reputation of those who had worked for the club down through the years was being negatived in order to justify the new or a new organization. It has been said on television and elsewhere that uh, the board was established to regularize the proceedings of the Irish Coursing Club and <coughs> to perfect an administration that was almost suspect prior to the setting up of the board. Uh, this, in my opinion, is wholly untrue. That what, uh, the true facts are that the board was set up, as I think I have said already, with a view to having tote betting legalised in the country and that it was at an intermediate stage during the proceedings of the advisory committee that control was shifted from the Irish Coursing Club over to the board. We were set up in 1958, you see. We, we didn't have any money. We um, didn't have any share capital. We didn't have any state grants. So, in effect, you see, what the report was saying was, right, the industry can be financed from within itself, and it was our job to do that. And so that our first task really was to um, to collect a levy from the bookmakers, and we had some early difficulties naturally. And um, but we did that. We we uh, collected a levy from the bookmakers, and we uh, took over direct control of the Greyhound racetracks. All that say in 1959-60, and then proceeded to. Uh, build totalisators. They were sort of the initial problems, finding the money to do these jobs uh, and setting up the totalisators, gradually doubling and spreading through the provinces. As in any sport where money changes hands, there was a need for rigid control. Most people knew that there were certain irregularities. Well, when the breeding came legis legislised then in 1926 or 27, people, we were some of the first 
that's registered a litter of pups with ICC in 1927. Odd trick out of Mona's aunt. And she was a harmonican bitch from Major McKelman's in Kilkenny. And at that time we had no papers for her and we were allowed when we started to get her registered first. So then from that then we kept them registered properly. But for years then until Board Nagan came along, it was everybody's business. You could register pups by different dogs and you could have them two year old and run them as puppies and everything until the earmarking came along. And that cleaned up a lot of it. Well, since the earmarking came, it has got much stricter. And at the moment today, I don't believe you could do anything with the greyhound, only do the right thing with them. It's tightened up that much. So there's no, there's no dogs running now, only what they are genuinely supposed to be. Was there much fixing of races in the old days? Oh, well, that, that lay with the management and the tracks, and there were a lot of that, of course. But the owner of the dog didn't know much about that. He thought he'd be in right and he wouldn't be in right. It was always if you had a good one. The manager always could put him on to beat you and he'd get a better price himself. And this happened? Oh, that happened. And what other forms of badness were there? Well, you could run a dog in a different... You had two black dogs and they weren't earmarked and you could run one for the other. You could run, run the good one for the bad one and the bad one for the good one. And you knew this to happen? Well, oh, I knew it very... Everybody knew that happened long ago. But well, uh, you can call it what you like, but a man that has a dog, it's his business what he does with him. Or a horse, it's all the same. They don't keep them for you or me. See, that's the trouble with it. And uh, you know, people will talk about a trainer or known or what he done with a dog, but they don't keep one themselves. If they did, they wouldn't have a word to say. See, that's it. Because no matter how bad a dog runs, he's got to be taken home and fed again, hasn't he? And it mightn't be the owner's fault either. Well, that's it. Well, you reckon that's a pretty straight game now, yeah? Well, sure, it'd be very hard to say that anything where there's gambling is 100%. Sure, it couldn't be. If it was, it'd hardly last. I mean... If you win a race tonight, well, you can't expect to win the next night. He goes up a bit in class and you just don't bother with him. But the public might think he'd have a chance. He might have a chance too. But the owner mightn't think he had a chance. You see, they're overrated sometimes. When a dog wins, when he's in a bad class, they think he's great. When he goes up then, he's like a terrier. That's the way it works out. And then, of course, the owner stopped him, or something like that. But I can tell you, they don't stop a whole lot of them. It doesn't pay them. The majority of followers of the sport were honourable men. Jim Sherry was typical. I was in the happy position to never meet a rogue. I, I, I made a patent to anybody that was placing dogs with me that they were there to win every time I put them down to run and they could light that lumper <laughs> so that I never was bothered with anyone pulling strokes 
But there were strokes pulled. Oh, I dare say. I heard of one or two of his time. But I uh, didn't approve of it. Pat Holland of Bordnagan is the man with particular responsibility for discipline in the sport. Well, the control committee consists of members of the board and its job is similar to that of the stewards of the turf club. The board has a control steward at each track and that steward sends a report of the meeting to the control committee of every meeting. Now, if there's any investigation carried out at that track, he sends a report of this and the control committee may subsequently investigate the matter further. Initially, investigations are carried out by the stewards of the meeting at the track, and the more serious ones are then referred to the control committee. The committee then would take um, disciplinary action where necessary. These are broadly the functions of the control committee. Does your board go to the um, extent of warning people off, as they do in horse racing? Oh, yes, people have been warned off. I mean, people found guilty of any malpractice have been warned off. And what does this mean in effect? This means that a person who was warned off cannot attend any greyhound racetrack, any coursing meeting or any public sales of greyhounds and all his greyhounds are also disqualified so they cannot be run at any other meeting or greyhound race meeting, sales or coursing meeting. Greyhounds may be trained privately or sent to a public trainer. One of the most successful trainers of recent years is Jer McKenna. He had left for London with his entries for the English Derby, but I spoke to his wife Josie in Boris O'Kane. He, he's been very, very lucky down through the years. He's won, I suppose, probably all the classics, in fact, any of the good stakes he's tried. He's been lucky enough to win. I suppose there's an element of luck there all the time, really. And um, we have been lucky year after year because it's a... A sport like any other sport, you just it's a gamble to a certain extent. Uh, you just have to take your chance, and he has been lucky with them. He's won um, the Derby on a few occasions, the Ledger, the Cesarwich, the Laurels, all of the classics, in fact, with the exception of the Oaks. This is the only one which he found uh, eluded him from time to time. But there again, it's um, very, very hard to have good bitches right at the right time. You may have good bitches, but they, you know, could go amiss or something like this. And the Oaks is only once a year, so uh, it's one of those things you can't do anything about. And uh, the Ledger, I suppose, must be the one that um, we really feel we have a claim on at this stage. Uh, he's been very lucky with that. In fact, we've won it ten times in twenty years, which is a a, a great record, I'm sure. I, I doubt if it'll ever be broken. At least I, I, I wouldn't think it will in a hurry. And. Um, We've been lucky enough, we've had good dogs, most of the good dogs, in fact, that are at stud now, we've had them from time to time, you know, and uh, it's it's a great feeling of achievement, really, when uh, it's all over. What about you? How did you become involved? Well, funnily enough, I didn't know anything about greyhounds until I was married. Uh, I'd never seen, I don't think I'd ever seen a greyhound, I had no interest whatsoever in them anyway, but... Um, after that, then, I suppose, uh, I started going around to the tracks and uh, became interested in... got more and more involved all the time, and um, with the result now that I'm going practically day and night and love them. And Jerry and myself then do the driving, and uh, we're well organised. It's a full-time job, of course, from um, racing six nights a week uh, between Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Dundalk, Waterford, Mullingar, 
Oh, the, the lot really. Any, any, you know, you name it. There are, I think, twenty six tracks in the country altogether, and um, there's never a night but we're at one of them anyway. You know. Feeding a kennel full of dogs is both expensive and laborious. That's a big day's work in itself, really, because there's an awful lot involved uh, feeding so many dogs to have to get the best of everything, naturally enough. Um, they, um, they're fed mainly on uh, meat, bread, milk, eggs, glucose, different vitamins then in their food and stuff like that, you know. Uh, I don't know, you want a whole menu, really, to, uh, to tell you the lot, you know, but they, they, oh, they were very well fed anyway. I asked Jim Sherry if methods of training and feeding were different in the old days. Well, I don't think they the differed basically. You, you, uh, of course, in the summertime of the year, you always had to get out before the heat of the day. I suppose there's very few <laughs> present-day ten lads <laughs> would approve of getting out at five o'clock in the summer's morning, but. Uh, if they're dedicated enough, they still do it. If they want to get results, they'll have to do it because uh, the heat of the day is not a time to work a dog. You gave him whatever work you, he needed or you thought he needed before the sun got up before, say, 8 o'clock in the summertime. You fed him then a late breakfast, uh, bread and milk and eggs and uh, glucose, the like of that, toast. And then... Uh, you had a break yourself, got your own breakfast, of course, and uh, you started grooming then and cleaning them, massaging them about, say, 10 o'clock. And you carried on till, say, 1 o'clock. And then you had your own break, about an hour. And you uh, got ready the evening. That The main meal of the evening then would be uh, fed about 4 o'clock, from 4 to 5 and, of course, if you were going racing, you wouldn't feed them until you came by. Uh, they got a, a, a light spoonful of glucose and the like of that. A uh, small portion of, of minced meat without fat. And uh, I think methods haven't changed much. Paddy Dunphy of Castlecomer doesn't agree with Jim Sherry. He thinks the training methods have changed. Oh yes, very much so. The present day trainers are not working their dogs as hard as uh, we did years ago. We walked our dogs a lot and groomed them. We went up the road and off to the fields each day with them. But the present day trainers, they're more inclined now to just throw them in a car go to a schooling track, give them a trial, repeat that in four or five days. But they're not working as hard as we did. Are they getting as good a result? They are. (laughs) (laughs) They're getting it for the dog, but I don't think they're getting it for themselves. Because the training of a dog, it's a great thing for the owner. As well as training the dog, he's keeping himself fit. Ben McCauley is one of many concerned with the continuity of the sport. He breeds greyhounds. I am a breeder. That's my main interest in greyhounds. 
I uh, breed mainly for a hobby. I started to breed mainly for a hobby, but uh, as most breeders find that they have to keep selling most of the stock because you'd be overrun with greyhounds if you didn't, I decided that uh, I would keep as many as I possibly could and bring them right through to racing stage. Uh, I found this reasonably successful. But as against that, I still have an enormous amount of dogs which I have to keep selling because you, you breed a litter of pups and you find yourself with maybe eight, nine, sometimes ten pups in a litter. If you do this twice a year with just the one brood bitch, you could find yourself with an enormous amount of dogs in your hands. And uh, it's very, very rare that you get uh, a classic potential dog. The experts claim that there's one in 10,000 which is capable of contesting a classic. So those are big odds in anybody's uh, life. So I find that it's good fun for me and I find it very successful as well. It hasn't cost me anything, but I don't. I wouldn't say that you could or you would make an awful lot of money out of breeding. I think most breeders have find that they can clear their expenses, enjoy their hobby, and uh, maybe if they make a little bit of money on over and above that. But it's, again, it's mostly for the sport. The Bible of the greyhound industry is the Sporting Press, published each Wednesday in Clonmel. Jim Murphy has edited the paper for 25 years. Apart from feature and editorial material, the hard core of the paper consists of meticulous details of all the races run on 22 racecourses. Dogs are bought directly from those results. They see their performances and they watch the performances maybe over a number of races, especially if they're in a particular stake or something like that, they watch them and uh, they read the reports of the correspondence and sometimes they buy them very quickly. We have instances of telephone call from America arriving to Clonmel people here on a Saturday morning the dog was bought that morning the man hadn't seen the dog but he accepted the paper with the result that we have to be very accurate not alone in our correspondence and, but in our production and if an error should arise on maybe our own fault printing error or it might be a fault on the card or the marked card even before the racing it might be an error we would have to publish a correction right away in the following week. We do this, and uh, our circulation is around about 10,000, but a quarter of those uh, go outside the country, a fair number to Britain, some to America, Australia, Spain, Portugal, various places. So uh, that's more or less the job we do here. One name that is linked with greyhound racing in the public mind is that of commentator Paddy O'Brien. He has been describing races for over 20 years and he has seen all the track stars of that period. Well, I suppose uh, there are a lot of great ones. Every time a track record goes up, you say, there's a great dog, and I don't want to give you a litany of those. So I suppose the one, the way one remembers things, really, is how you associate them with milestones along the way for yourself. The Grand Canal is one that I'll never forget because... That's Paddy Dunphy's dog. That's right. Yeah. He won the English Derby. And uh, I remember when television was just starting, we hadn't done any television bits at all at the time, and Michael O'Hare asked me one day, uh, Paddy, why don't we do a bit of magazine stuff to put into one of the sports programmes? 
what would you suggest? Well, I said, look, there's this greyhound down in Kilkenny and we really think he's going to win the English Derby. So uh, why don't we do a piece on him? Paddy Dunphy would love to have us down. Well, you know, to make a statement like that, when I look back on it in cold blood and say this dog is going to win the English Derby, that's something that owners were spending millions on and not succeeding. Anyhow, uh, we did a lovely little piece of camera work down in Paddy Dunphy's place. Paddy showed us all his father's cycling medals and his uh, own cups that he had won over the years with the Grand Champion and other dogs and we filmed the Grand Canal and the Grand Canal's mother and other relatives and the happy ending was unbelievably the Grand Canal went ahead and won the English Derby. I was over that night. That's okay. one. Spanish Battleship of course is the one that we keep on talking about what is it 25 years later we still keep saying you know we meet Tom Lynch and we say the Battleship this as if he were only yesterday. Well any greyhound that wins a Derby three times has to be a great one. Uh, I don't believe it'll ever happen again. He was the, the, the You'll get people reminiscing about that animal as if he were still alive. Some lots of great bitches, Clumony Grand and uh, dogs like General Kortnowski, as it was because of the curious name he had, but he was one heck of a great dog as well. Patsy Brown of uh, down the Midlands there had, as somebody said, had poor Kitty Butler, God rest her, tormented when he was naming his greyhounds because Patsy used to slip in uh, odd little names now General Court we used to call him Kortnowski as if he were a, some sort of a Polish officer but I don't quite know what Patsy had in mind I know the animal's names the animal's mother's name was Yobelstrap well what Patsy wanted to call the dog was your bloody strap and Kitty who was vetting the uh, naming forms at the time just wouldn't have that and Patsy had to be contented with Y-O-B-L-S-T-R-A-P so then there was uh, Rita's Choice. You were talking to the owner of that a while ago, Ben McCauley, and the Belly Begs. And, uh, oh, you know, naming names is a bit invidious because you leave out so many. Greyhound racing has been progressing over the years. No longer do dogs compete for a first prize of £5. Sean Collins aboard McGann. Price money for the bigger races is um, has been increased considerably in the in, in, in more recent years, particularly so by the advent of, of uh, sponsorship. But this, again, is, is a fairly conscious policy in that, uh, well, after all, the greyhounds who race in the Carl's Derby and the Oaks and the St. Ledger, they are worth many, many thousands of pounds. And uh, if one is to continue to attract them to race in this country the prize money pickings and prize money earnings must be available to them at home otherwise their their owners cannot afford to uh, uh, retain retain them in, in, in their property as, as their property and raise them in this country You mean that a good dog here will be poached that as soon as he establishes himself someone will come waving a checkbook Yeah, very much, very, that, that is the position at the moment that once a, a good dog emerges, be it in County Kerry or County Tyrone County Antrim, that um, the agents of the big cross-channel kennels and the big kennels in the United States and indeed in Australia, they are in there with open checks trying to buy the Georgie Bess of Irish Greyhound racing. Of course, though prize money has increased, owners still want more. Jim Connerty of Dundrum. Certainly the, the prize money could be a lot better because it is gone very expensive to keep dogs and especially in training I hate to have to be paying for a few dogs in training now 
with the expenses greatly because you're up against so many hazards such as dog injuries, injuries to dogs and all such as that, you know. The type of people who go to the dogs has been changing, according to Louis McGordon, the general manager of Shelburne Park. It was very rare in those days, in the 1960s, to see many females around, but nowadays it's, it's, it's the average thing, you know, to see maybe... And I wonder, Wednesday night you might see a couple of hundred and a Saturday night be going into the eight or nine or a thousand people in the female class. So this has been one of the changes that's been seen. The other thing has been seen, I suppose, that one would say some of the younger people too come, seem to come great on racing, probably they didn't in the past, you know, because they can, uh, we have the facilities for them and that type of thing and they, they like to come along, not just for the gamble, but just for entertainment purposes. The tote, with its forecast betting, has given greyhound racing a great shot on the arm. Is there then an argument for a tote monopoly? Noel Dramgoul of Bordnagan. As you probably know, they have a tote monopoly in the United States. They also have it in France. And this means a bigger share, of course, of the income from betting to these people who operate the totes. But uh, in this country, of course, there's tremendous tradition of bookmakers betting. The owners and the bigger punter, he likes to have his bet with the bookmaker. He likes to know his odds when he's placing his bet. This can't be done, of course, with the totes. I generally bet with the bootmaker. Um, I'd like a bit of life in it. Uh, the tote doesn't appeal to me, but to the general public, it's all the tote. But I can't. I'd like to know my dog, and I only back a bet when I'd uh, fancy one of my own have a bet on it. I'd let them run, and I'd have no bet at all. But I would uh, much prefer to go to the bookie than to tote. I'd like to know beforehand from the odds. <laughs> they create atmosphere. They're calling out, shouting and that type of thing. We have had occasions, in fact, uh, probably one would say maybe unpleasant occasions, when we, had, we were betting without bookmakers for one or two nights. And it, it, it did look like, a, to us it sounded a vacuum. Oh, sure, the bookmakers are great characters. Charlie Scott. Up to the bank and you'd be paid. Charlie McLaughlin. Jack McFarlane. And of course, Crutchy Keegan, he's alive, yeah. Successful at home, the greyhound industry is looking outwards for new markets. Export trade is very good. To America now, there's great credit due to Bordnagon. And first man who started was Pat Dalton from Golden, which excelled himself in America as one of the top men in America now on the circuit and he made a great business for Irish greyhounds in America and it looks now that it's going to be much better because they're opening up more tracks every day in America I understand that when Pat Dalton went to America first the Americans didn't think much of Irish dogs Oh no, the, the Irish dogs had no reputation at all in America till Pat Dalton took over and is that why he went to show them? Yeah, he went to show them and he's very successful in it. And I read on one of the papers recently that one of the best greyhounds in America ever is an Irish bred dog at the moment. The present state of the greyhound industry in Ireland seems healthy. I asked Seamus Flanagan, the chief officer of Bordnagan, to predict the future. I would think that there is a tremendous future for the greyhound industry. I think that the uh, the primary hope is that the exports will develop and that Ireland has such a unique capacity for uh, breeding great greyhounds. 
And as the sport of greyhound racing spreads throughout the world, I think that this country must stand to benefit enormously. And uh, I believe that the, that uh, there will be a great spin-off here uh, internally as a result. So I, I see a, a, a fine future for the greyhound industry. Suppe's Light Cavalry Overture, played by the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. We move back once more to Fedora by Giordano, and this aria from the second act to be sung by Gaetano Bardini, Mia Madre. Quasi morta di fame, 
Madre from Fedora by Umberto Giordano was sung by Gaetano Bardini. Not so long ago, it was the done thing to have a piano in the house, before the development of television, that was. And because of having learned to play the instrument, there are many who, when they were feeling not so cheerful, found that to sit and play the piano for a while was every bit as good as going up to your room to have a good cry. I don't wish you any tearful moments, but the piano piece we're about to hear was written by Robert Schumann, who had many tears in his life, caused principally by a brain disease that gave him much pain and deep depression. So intense was it that on the 27th of February, 1854, Schumann tried to end it all by jumping into the Rhine. But he was rescued, brought to a private hospital in Bonn, in which he died two years later. Einzelne Blumen by Schumann is played by Christoph Eschenbach. Einzelne Blumen by Robert Schumann was played by Christoph Eschenbach. The Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky was first produced in 1892 and this trepack from it is played by the London Festival Orchestra.
That Trepak from The Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky was played by the London Festival Orchestra. And with it, it's time to close the lid in my music box for now. I hope you enjoyed today's selection, and I look forward to sharing your company again next week at the same time. Until then, goodbye. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.